This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Thank you so much for joining us today and a happy Women's History Month as we celebrate and honor women's contributions to all aspects of our lives. The day also serves as a call to action to accelerate gender equality. And the theme for this year's International Women's Day is hashtag Embrace Equity. We focus on amplifying the work of black women in the food industry, recognizing that actually within the food industry, racism and sexism are quite entrenched. And black women's contributions are often under uh, undervalued or unseen. That is Nina Oduro. She's the co-founder of Dine Diaspora, an agency that connects people and brands to African diaspora food culture. Nina talks to us about Dine Diaspora's initiative known as Black Women in Food, whose mission is to identify and support black women in the food and beverage industry. And still on the theme of food, a Ghanaian entrepreneur joins us from Accra to talk about the concept of crowd farming. Usually we take about 50 to 60% of the yield. And then the remaining 40% pays for the inputs and all the support you've given them. And the profits you get is what we are going to use to pay back our sponsors, their initial investment plus some return. That is Kojo Boateng of Agromedia, a company that runs Serewa, a crowdfunding initiative that offers people an opportunity to invest in small and medium holder farms in Ghana. But first, as always, let's listen to your opinions. We asked our listeners in Malawi to tell us about some of the women entrepreneurs that inspire them. A woman entrepreneur who inspires me a lot is the um, founder of the Malawi Face Technology Hub, known as the M-Hub. I'm impressed with this woman because she's just a girl. She's young and courageous. For example, she achieved a lot at her young age. For example, in 2016, she was among the 30 promising entrepreneurs in Africa. A woman who inspired me a lot is our former head of state, Madam Joyce Banda. Being a former head of state here in Malawi, she has done so many great things being an entrepreneur in a way that, as I'm saying now, she has a school, Joyce Banda Foundation. And having this school, she has tried to employ some teachers there, not even teachers, talking of accountants, and so doing, reducing the level of unemployment here in Malawi. Human entrepreneur who does agree business. An example is Grace Mhango. She grow crops including maize, tobacco and legumes. Grace inspires me in the way that being a woman, she is strong, hardworking and that oriented. Uh, women entrepreneur that inspires me are those that are in agri business. They inspire me because they feed the nation and uh, it's a profitable business because every day people would want to eat. So venturing into uh, agribusiness is a very good investment. We are assured of uh, availability of market. And many thanks to all of you for your opinions. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Now, there is no doubt that black women play a significant role in shaping the global food industry and the culinary landscape of many communities around the world, from running their food businesses to working as chefs, cookbook authors, and food bloggers, among other roles. However, 
most of their contributions often go unnoticed and many of them don't get the credit they deserve or even the help they need to grow their businesses. But that is changing and in the recent years, there has been a growing movement to support and promote black women in the food industry with organizations such as Dine Diaspora, an agency that connects people and brands to African food culture. Dine Diaspora was founded by three young African women entrepreneurs in the Washington, D.C. area, and one of them is Nina Oduro, and she joins us to talk about her organization's initiative known as Black Women in Food, whose mission, she says, is to identify and support black women in the food and beverage industry. So what is the idea behind Dying Diaspora? How did you start and what is your mission? Definitely. So Dying Diaspora works really primarily in the culinary industry, working with brands um, and people that work within the food industry to amplify their work. We work primarily featuring black people and black talent across the food industry. recognize that oftentimes their work goes unrecognized or unseen. Um, and so we get to partner with brands to help them tell their story through food using Black talent. And what is uh, Black Women in Food? Yeah, so Black Women in Food is actually an initiative that we started through Dine Diaspora, and it's a nonprofit element of our work in which we focus on amplifying the work of Black women in the food industry, recognizing that actually within the food industry, racism and sexism are quite entrenched, and Black women's contributions are often under, uh, undervalued or unseen. And so we have a campaign around awarding black women's contributions. Um, we also provide access to capital, recognizing that black women face um, barriers to accessing capital for their food businesses. And we also provide resources and community um, so that they can build their networks to grow their work. What are some of the unique challenges that black women face in the food industry? I think we, it goes back to, you know, the access to capital. That is one of the primary issues that black women as being critical to a uh, critical barrier to their growth. Um, when we think about how money is essential to growing businesses, we know that black women have um, challenges accessing loans um, and through some of the barriers in accessing loans, whether it be racism um, or perhaps not having all, all the knowledge it takes to acquire um, that, that type of capital. We um, know that that can be really um, detrimental to how they are able to uh, get the funds they need to thrive. Um, the other would be networks, right? So oftentimes who you know um, and what resources they have to input into your work is critical. And when you don't have a lot of access to people building, people investors or, or other people that can grow your business, it can really make your work stagnant. And so having those things and recognizing that black women need critical attention to those is, is really important for us to provide. And what are some of the ways to advocate or that you are advocating for black women in the food industry? Yeah, so we provide a number of touch points, right? So during March, we actually um, amplify black women through an awards program called the Black Women in, black women in Food Awards. This is our sixth year doing the award, so we're really excited to welcome a new group of awardees from all over the world and around the country. Um, these women are black women farmers, they're black women food activists, they're black women um, investors and uh, innovators in the food industry. And so we're really excited to really tell their stories and amplify their work because they're already doing such amazing uh, work and contributing immensely to the way that 
food experience in the world. Um, the other thing that we're providing is um, that opportunities for networking. So throughout the year, we're doing events all over the country to ensure that black women are actually meeting each other within the food industry and not just each other um, in one area. We're talking about connecting the food system, so making linkages in the food system. So that means, you know, if you are starting your business, you're able to talk to some investors. You're able to get to some, meet them and get advice from them as you think about how you might grow your business and making sure that you're meeting media folks and getting um, them to really see what you're doing so that they may be able to amplify your work. All these critical elements of the system are important for any entrepreneur to thrive or any woman in the food industry in any facet to be able to grow, and we want to make those linkages through our events. Um, and then one of the big ones coming is our summit. So we have a summit in April, um, the Black Women in Food Summit. Um, and this summit convenes all the black women around the world that really want to uh, make linkages and, and connect with each other and also learn from each other. Um, and so there's really a several touch points, and I don't want to forget, later this year we'll be opening up a grant a grant competition um, to give away grants to black women, um, primarily in the restaurant industry and women that are growing consumer packaged goods um, and products that we believe are essential to the market. So people can look out for all of those opportunities to get involved and to um, see ways that they can um, not just um, as a black woman in the food industry, but as someone, anyone that experiences food, how they can also tap into supporting these women. Right. And finally, Nina, what, what aspects of the food industry are women more active in ways that might not be well known or even acknowledged? Yeah, so I would say a lot of the ways that we experience food are through maybe going to restaurants, the more visible elements of the food industry, where we, we always, you know, when you say food, people are thinking about the food that's right in front of you, the chefs, um, the caterers. However, food is very vast, and we think about, you know, some of the folks we don't normally see, the farmers um, that are, you know, tilling the soil, that are making sure our food gets to um, in front of us. Um, we're not thinking about the folks that are working in the food waste um, element. So after we eat our food, where does it go? Um, what are we doing with it? We're not thinking also of the food scientists and the, the women um, and the folks that are really researching how we can get more nutrients, you know, how we can eat better plant-based foods with a great taste. And so there's so many un- invisible elements um, that I think we all need to learn more about. We all need to see the faces. Um, I think it's critical for us to see examples of black women um, in these professions and in these areas so that we can all dream of one day either, you know, contributing the way to, to contributing to building the food system in the ways that they have. That was Nina Oduro, co-founder of Dine Diaspora. She joined me via phone from Washington. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. My name is uh, Pio Kevin, and I'm a South Sudanese. The woman I can talk about is my mother, because she's been there for me from day one of my childhood up to now. She's been fighting for me so much. Because remember sometimes back I was being forced to go for early marriage, but she stood there for me and she's like, no, my daughter has to go to school. She understood my right and she pushed with me. And if you look at the majority of the South Sudanese at the moment, the mothers are the ones who are standing strong for their children. You know, things to do with feeding at home, everything. A man can just give man at home, but, you know, Maybe we'll give for something else, but the woman knows that it's the right for my children to eat. 
what I would actually want to emphasize is that our government uh, should prioritize uh, maybe girls' education if they want a change, a bigger change. Because some of the things are actually, uh, I mean, they are made worse because of lack of education for girls. My name is Alam Noel. I am a South Sudanese. Women in this country are trying so hard uh, to fight uh, these uh, issues of being uh, self-independent. In South Sudan here, women uh, uh, open up small businesses like maybe tea cells. They're doing it to earn a living. Yes, and also support themselves and their families. Many thanks to all of you who sent in your opinions to the show. This is Upfront on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani. Now, food security experts say that Africa needs to grow its food production by 60% over the next 15 years if it's to meet the food needs of its rapidly growing population. But for a continent that sits on over 200 hectares of fertile and unfarmed land, much of the farming is done by smallholder farmers, and many of them say that they need more investment in the agricultural sector if they are to increase crop yield and food supply. But with the lack of interest from financial institutions in providing credit facilities to small and medium holder farmers, young entrepreneurs in countries like Ghana are having to come up with innovative ways to fund agricultural development. My next guest is Kojo Akoto Bwateng. He's the team lead at Wecom AgriMedia, a company based in Accra, Ghana. Wecom AgriMedia operates in Serewa, a crowdfunding farming platform. And Kojo tells me that agriculture crowdfunding is a solution that allows farmers, agribusinesses, and other agricultural entrepreneurs to access funding from a large number of individuals who are interested in supporting sustainable agriculture projects. He explains to me how this works. So I'll put my crop budget out there per commodity, rice, soya, maize, and the general public and some corporate entities will, will, will subscribe to the crowdfund. Some people, so, so the minimum you can fund is an acre. So some people can do 10 acres, 50 acres. So they bring the money, we procure the inputs, and then we give to the farmers. We just don't give them inputs. We also have a team of experienced agronomists who live with the farmers and work with the farmers. So we live with them and then we work with them. So we provide technical services. Mm. At the end of the season, once we harvest, we will take the cost of our input back in the form of commodity, either rice, maize or soya. And then we sell on the market and then we pay back our sponsors with some interest. And Kojo says that crowdfunding provides an alternative source of funding when traditional financing options are limited or unavailable. Our role is key because traditional banking institutions do not understand how to manage smallholder farmers and the relationships with smallholder farmers. They do a lot of um, due diligence that a lot of these smallholder farmers do not meet because a lot of them are not educated. Mm. The banks also do not have the patience to manage, educate, train, and bring these smallholder farmers up to a certain level where they are credit worthy. What we do is to work with the smallholder farmers. We live with them. We work with them. We go through the whole 360 production cycle with them. Mm. So there's a bit of an assurance that they'll do the right thing and our sponsors will get the right returns. So crowdfunding schemes are now becoming 
the main backbone of agricultural production, especially in the developing world where access to capital is a big problem. So how are the profits distributed in ways that benefit both the farmer and the investor? Kojo explains. So let me use um, maize as an example. Mm. If I'm farming an acre of maize in Ghana, my return or my yield should be about 40, 50 kg bags. We should be about 2.2, 2.5 tons thereabouts, right? Um, so if that is my yield, um, the farmer usually will take about 50 to 60% of the yield. And then the remaining 40% pays for the input and all the support you've given them. Now that remaining 40% is what we are going to sell and the profits we get is what we are going to use to pay back our sponsors their initial investment plus some return. Agriculture crowdfunding platforms typically offer a range of funding models, including equity-based and debt-based models. Nserewa is a debt-based model. It involves loaning money to a farm or agribusiness with the expectation of repayment with interest. However, sometimes it can be difficult to find the market for the produce. We also aggregate all that they produce and create the access to market so that they can also get readily available market for them to sell their produce. So, for example, last year, we worked with close to 700 small-scale smallholder farmers to do about 5,000 acres. So we signed off-taker agreements with large off-takers, including um, 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 large-scale poultry farms, um, vegetable oil production companies, the breweries which buy some of our stuff. So once we harvest from all the farmers, we sell to these people and ensure the farmers get their money. And then what is due the sponsors, we give to the sponsors plus their return on investment. And in this whole mix, we also take crop insurance. So should anything happen to the production, we also ensure that we have signed up for a crop insurance policy which directs the whole operation for the farmer, for the sponsor, and for ourselves. Food security experts warn that price volatility is a serious issue that impacts smallholder farmers in Africa. But even with the rises and falls in global food prices, Kojo says that this is not an issue that worries him. He says that he's more concerned with how to help smallholder farmers move to the next stage as middle-scale farmers. So global crop prices are fluctuating. Input prices are also fluctuating. So input prices are going up. And globally, so the main crops we produce, and and, and I'm just using Ghana as an example. Since I became an adult, I've not seen any instance where commodity prices have gone down when it comes to food prices. Mm. If you you look at Ghana over the past one year, food inflation has been over 50%. So for the crop prices, they always keep going up. Input prices always also keep going up. One of the things that we are able to do to help our farmers is that we work with the large input distributors and the large input companies to sometimes lock the prices so that if I know that the projected price of fertilizer by the time we enter the major season will increase by 30%, I would have signed a deal with, say, OCP Africa and locked down a certain quantity of fertilizer I'll need for my production and fixed the price so that the future increase in the price 
would not necessarily affect my farmers. Now, reports show that Africa imported about 85% of its food from outside the continent. I asked Kojo if there is concern that foreign food commodities would present an unfair competition with local produce. Well, for, for maize, soya, sorghum, millets, and some of our key grains, because we are unable to produce enough to feed the markets, for example, maize in 2022, Ghana's target was 4 million metric tons. We were not able to meet that 4 million metric tons of grain. So definitely we needed to import some um, grain to, to, to balance the skills, right? The, the main commodity which we've had a challenge with over the years has been rice. Because as we all know, rice is not indigenously Ghanaian or indigenously African. Rice is, 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 is originally from Asia. So the Asians had more capacity to produce rice at scale at the right cost. So rice that we were getting from Asia was, was cheaper. And so we're importing a lot of rice from these places. The challenges we had with selling rice to our local populations or our local consumers was the quality, right? But with time, at least over the past 10 years, the government of Ghana's concerted efforts with private sector and research institutions has resulted in a situation where now we have the right varieties of rice, that's the ex-biker and the agra rice, which is largely long grain and aromatic, which the market wants. And we're also able to produce at scale and at a reasonable cost. So we're able to compete with imported rice. Last year, uh, getting to the end of the year, with the challenges with our currency and with all the issues on the global front, a 25-kilogram bag of locally produced rice was selling at 50% less the imported rice of the same quality. So rice producers in Ghana were able to sell all their rice and also reinvest in large acreages. So we are turning around the tides, and the global challenges are also making the, our consumers and the market and the, and, 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 and the various African nations look internally for their food security needs. So now we are mm. promoting more consumption of locally produced stuff so that our farmers can always be in business and our, and our consumers are also assured that when there are any global, global uncertainties, at least, they can depend on local producers. A McKinsey report says that in sub-Saharan Africa, more than 60% of the population are smallholder farmers. But the agriculture sector continues to face both internal and external shocks. We import a lot of our fertilizer from outside Africa, right? We import a lot of our seed from outside Africa. We import a lot of our crop protection from outside Africa. If you look at Ghana, uh, for example, in the year 2020, we imported about 600,000 metric tons of fertilizer. When COVID hit, our fertilizer imports dropped by about 50% to some 300,000 metric tons. So it meant that farmers didn't get enough fertilizer to do the production they needed to do. Um, then Russia, Ukraine started. And that also impacted the price of fertilizer because a lot of the ammonia and some of the key input for fertilizer blending is imported from Russia, Ukraine, and China and, and, and these countries. So the Russia-Ukraine war also resulted in the increase 
and fertilizer prices. The same Russia-Ukraine war also resulted in the increase of um, crop protection and other inputs that we use. But Africa has a very unique opportunity to actually be the, the gatekeeper of global food supply because Morocco sits on 70% of the world's phosphate reserves. 45 to 60% of all waste generated in Ghana, for example, is organic waste. Now, this organic waste can be, can be processed into organic fertilizer for, crop, for, 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 for food production. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the things that Africa must learn and, 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 and optimize the use of the raw materials within, with, with, within the continent. When mm-hmm. it comes to water resources, we have enough water, underground water resources. We have um, runoff water resources. We've got a lot of water bodies. So we really have everything we need to be food sufficient, to create the right balance when it comes to um, being self-sufficient in food production, and also to create the, the jobs that we need for the growing African population. That is Kojo Boateng of WECOM AgriMedia. I reached him in Accra, Ghana. listening to Upfront on the Voice of America, I'm Jackson Vungani. And for our final story, let's go to Cape Town in South Africa, where young artists, like everywhere else, struggle to earn a living. But that's especially true in South Africa, where youth unemployment is more than 43%. The International Public Art Festival is trying to help bridge that gap by connecting young artists with companies looking for creative marketing. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town in South Africa. The International Public Art Festival in Cape Town aims to address South Africa's unemployment rate, which is one of the highest in the world. About 4.6 million of the 10.2 million young people aged 15 to 34 are out of work. Artists who painted these murals got tips on how to make it commercially. Work was so scarce that 22-year-old Hanim Davids chose to study events management instead of focusing on her art. David says it was a tough decision. There was definitely a time where I wanted to work as an artist full-time, especially in high school while I was studying. It was obviously a dream. Artist manager Zima Sile Mjokozeli agrees it's tough out there and says artists must learn how to navigate the art world like working with an art gallery to increase their chances of making it. Mjokozeli says those who want to go it alone shouldn't neglect the business side of things. There are artists who, are, who can manage, but I don't think um, the broad perspective of artists uh, do manage to make a living like that because um, it could you could sell a painting <laughs> this month and then your next painting is in six months. And that's just the reality of you know the economy that we're in and the creative industry that we're in. John Wan, whose birth name is John Andrew Perello, is considered one of the best graffiti artists in the world. He was born in America and honed his art in New York City's Harlem neighborhood. His work sells for hundreds of thousands of dollars. John Wan said it's important for artists to see the value in what they're doing. I was providing um, happiness and joy and liberty to people and and they had to sort of like um, if they really believed in what I was doing they had to support me and not just with a pat in the back and a thumbs up 
Organizers say the festival provides a venue for artists to build relations, find work and get advice. Alexander Tillmans is the co-founder of Baz Art, which hosts the annual festival. He agrees with the advice one lawyer gave the artists. Trust your guts. He said, if you feel that it's, there's something that tells you it's going to go wrong, maybe don't do it. You're going to save time. Get a deposit. Always get a deposit so you know your bare minimum is covered. Have a contract, not a WhatsApp, but at least an email with the agreement, that price for that duration, for that piece of art. Tillmans has stressed that South Africa's creative economy should be part of any high-value growth strategy to reduce unemployment. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. And with that, we come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to all our guests and to you for tuning in, whether you tuned in via radio or via our website, voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms. We are at VOA Africa and at VOA Upfront. Until next time, I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington, wishing you a great day ahead, Africa. Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. <laughs>